Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Beach Ratty. The U.S. Open is here and uh, definitely worthwhile going over and checking out BeachRatty.com. They have released a limited edition Heritage logo. It is a really neat logo. It's a Wingfoot U.S. Open logo. It's got the you know, iconic Wingfoot logo and a ring around it with the years that it's hosted U.S. Opens. It's really neat. I'm wearing it right now. It is a great way to own a little piece of U.S. Open history, and it is available on a few items at bdraddy.com, like the Liam Polo, the Russell Quarter Zip. That item is awesome, especially with fall around the corner. It's like your favorite hoodie, but dressed up, extremely comfortable. You can wear it in any kind of setting. And then also the Willie Crewneck tee. So you can pick up one of these at bedratty.com and be sure to check them out. Today's episode is with John Bodenhammer. John is the Senior Managing Director of Championships for the USGA. Uh, He came on the podcast during the quarantine, if you remember back to them, but we barely talked about Wingfoot in that episode. So I wanted to have a back on and we get into the nitty gritty on setup, uh, what to expect at Wingfoot, how they go about the process of picking pins, all sorts of good stuff. As a reminder, we have a ton of Wingfoot coverage. We had Neil Regan, the club historian on, Jeff Ogilvy, the 2006 champion, was on last week on the podcast. And then later this week, we will have a fried egg story produced by Garrett Morrison. And that will be on the 74 U.S. Open at Wingfoot, The Massacre. Really cool podcast. I, uh, I've read the script, and that should be out Tuesday. So we've got you covered here. And then if you, if you haven't yet, subscribe to our newsletter at thefriedegg.com and you will not miss any of our written content on the U.S. Open. So, without further ado, here is John Bodenhammer. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. John, it's uh, it's U.S. Open week. We're uh, you're back. We're excited to be back. You know, there's a time a few months ago we weren't thought we didn't think we, or I should say we weren't sure that we were going to play uh, anything this year. And uh, you know, it was it was just uh, oh, I guess back March 13th, sitting in our Marion Conference Room at Golf House when the world began to shut down, and really uh, just wondering what the rest of the year would unfold as being and that uncertainty and the unknown was really hard and we've had to navigate a tough journey but i'll tell you what it feels good to be here just a few days before and on the eve of the u.s open the 120th u.s open at wingfoot it feels really good we're excited yeah i mean i guess one of the byproducts of it is from an agronomic standpoint you can't beat september in new york you know, we, we always felt that way, and uh, it's proving true, knock on wood, that uh, the weather this week will remain uh, dry and relatively warm. It'll be a little, a little cooler in the weekend, some cool nights heading towards later this week, it looks like, but it's going to be a beautiful week in the Northeast, and um, 
you know, the club, Wingfoot Golf Club's done a magnificent job coming through a very hot summer, very busy membership that played, uh, was out on the course a lot, but uh, Steve Rabideau, the golf course superintendent, uh, members have told me countless times this place has never looked better. It's just in fantastic condition. With that, is there anything, given the benefits, obviously the cooler nights, the cooler days, um, less time for the grass to grow, obviously the Poe greens and, you know, versus June where you have the long days, it can get really hot and, you know, there isn't that much growing time beforehand. Is there anything from a setup standpoint that this allows you guys to do uh, that you wouldn't have been able to do in June? Well, we're cautiously optimistic uh, the end, because the answer to that is yes. If the weather stays where it's currently forecasted, uh, we'll get some dryness. We won't get a lot of heat. We're going to get a little bit of heat earlier this week and uh, the rough will, and a little bit of humidity. And the rough has been growing rapidly here. We've managed it just, just uh, as we came in, oh, about 10 days ago. And we'd, we'd been up two weeks previous to that. We had it right where we wanted. We've been managing it ever since and it is it is um it is uh a lush there'll be a premium on accuracy this week uh as we had intended right by the plan but i think as we go into the week and we get past that little humid spell we're gonna have a little cold front moves through things will cool down we'll do our last uh, cuts this week and then uh it'll slow down a little bit and it'll it'll, it'll kind of maintain as as where we are going into the weekend we think that could be a good uh a good um, outcome for us come this weekend. Talk about how great it is to not have rain in the forecast so far. You know, like what what does not having any rain in the forecast allow you guys to do from a setup standpoint? It's really a, a wonderful question because, you know, a lot of people really sometimes don't recognize that, um, and especially I think at the USJ, but I think all, all of the majors really endeavor it's great, firm and fast conditions. It's what the best players want. They want some bounciness because the really good ball strikers can control their ball. They can get it in the fairway. They can control the spin. They can control the tra- trajectory, the left-right flight of it. And um, being able to hit onto firm fairways uh, and firm greens, is, you know, the, the better players rise to the top. Uh, softness is the great equalizer. You're just throwing darts. Everybody can do that. But when you get, uh, you know, everybody can throw it up in the air and if it just lands where it lands, everybody can do that. But the really great players know and have a, a sixth sense in how they control the ball once it hits the ground. They can spin the ball. They can, they can put the ball where they want it. They can keep it below the hole. And when it's firm, they have an advantage and then the cream rises to the, to, the, to the top. And I think that's why we've always tried to do that with the U.S. Open, endeavor to, to – uh, create firm and fast conditions because we do believe that it does identify the better player because uh, the better ball strikers can control their, their shots on firm and fast conditions. Yeah. It magnifies that one groove low miss. It's, it provides that little extra bounce and instead of 10 feet, it might end up 20 feet away. And, you know, you look at Wingfoot's greens and, and the difference between a great shot and an average one is definitely evident. Talk a little bit about the, greens and obviously these major restoration that captured about 40 percent more pinnable areas and many of the greens out there what did you watch 
past U.S. Opens at Wingfoot? And if so, is there, you know, if for those that have watched it, are we going to see some new pins this year thanks to the enlarged greens? We are. And, uh, yes, I did watch film of every single past U.S. Open here at Wingfoot from 1929, very brief clips of Bob Jones and others, uh, all the way through 59 and 80, uh, 74, uh, especially 74. Watch Taylor one, but I watched that uh, final round 10 times uh, in 84 and certainly 2006 about 10 times. Just looking at little nuanced things, what whole locations were they using? Where were the rough lines? What were they doing out of the rough? What, how was the ball reacting? How were the putting greens reacting? You know, we've got a different golf course uh, this time at Wingfoot. Um, and I, I say that because uh, a few years ago, about three years ago, Gil Hans came in with the club and restored. And that's the key word. It's, it was a restoration of Wingfoot to the Tillinghouse design in many ways. And one of the most important ways is the 40 miles of drain tile. I guess about half of that on the West course, the East course is just, it's fabulous here too. By the way, for, for your listeners that may, may not know that, it's wonderful. We've had women's opens and four balls and, and others other championships here too. But about 20 plus miles of drain tile, the fairways are running firmer, even if it would rain. But these putting greens used to be these old 1920s vintage push-up putting greens that were pushed up with a clay base about 18 inches down that were designed to hold moisture. That's how they kept them alive in the summer because they didn't have irrigation systems really like we know it today. They kept the moisture in the putting greens with that clay base. The moisture would sit on top of that clay base. And when you get in the really hot dog days of summer, that would create kind of mushy, kind of you know difficult conditions that superintendents today could navigate through, but um, it was a challenge. And three years ago, Wingfoot uh, rebuilt their putting greens, all of them. To USJ specifications, sand-based, installed sub-air system. And so they dry down a little bit quicker than the, the otherwise would. We get some of that moisture out of uh, the subsurface. And uh, we can, with conditions without some rain, we can really control the moisture that goes into them and how they uh, react to ball, uh, ball flight into them. Yeah. It's, and it's, I would, I, I'm sorry, I didn't answer the second part of your question. I would say, the other part of it is uh, Gill and the club uh, reclaimed, and this often happens with older vintage, cl vintage clubs, uh, reclaimed 23.8% uh, of new or of old putting green space that used to be here that uh, over time with mowing patterns had, had shrunk, the green putting green footprint had shrunk. I could show you heat maps where around many of the greens, you know, 20 to 30% bigger, which did give us a number of new hole locations we didn't have in 06. It's the biggest the greens will be since the 28 open. I believe that's, I had to Probably. think about that, but that, yes, and I believe I, that's got to be true. And I'll tell you why, it's because they used aerials from uh, the late 20s, circa the late 20s, uh, to restore the putting greens. And boy, they look like it. With the undulating greens, obviously there's a ton of non-pinnable areas that will catch people's eye with the the massive grade slope. But then, you know, it, in the pinnable areas, there, you know, it's a you know more subtle grade where you know it's less than three percent able to pin. 
what do those large unpinnable areas provide you guys from a setup standpoint? They provide us the opportunity to place holes in areas where those that are really great at reading putting greens can use their imagination. I'll give you an example. One of the iconic greens here at Wingfoot is number 15. When you watch Wingfoot this week, uh, number one and number 15, and I think every putting green on this on this uh, West course is, is iconic, but number 15 is very unique. A lot of history be behind number 15. I was out this morning uh, looking at hole locations with our team and I had a, I was in the upper back left part of the green and uh, there was a, there was a hole down in the very thing about this middle of the green and I could hit putts in three different directions and get it down to that hole. Could play it up eight feet right on a big feature and bring it down to the hole. I could play it just about uh, eight or 10 inches right and bring it down to the hole but with a little more risk of it running past or I could play it left to right on another feature and get it down to the hole. So it, it, you know, you just don't see that very often. And it, that's why I said, it's really a work of art. It's a masterpiece of Tillinghast. That was not by chance. Those sorts of things were done uh, because he had a great eye and it really does play to those that know how to read greens. It's fabulous. Yeah. The, obviously the green reading books have, this will be the first time that, players at U.S. Open will have green reading books at Wingfoot, but one of the things that is unique about these greens is what you just hit on, is even with the green reading books, you still have choices on, on longer putts as to which line you want to take. It's not a, this is the exact line you have to take sort of proposition that we see most weeks on tour. You're spot on, and I think that's what, what makes these putting greens. Everybody will look at them, and they the, the rest, the restored putting greens have a geometric shape to them. They're more squared off in many, in many areas uh, where they had really taken on this roundness, uh, but now they've been restored to this more rectangular shape almost in many ways. You know, it's, it's, it's true where uh, it, it, there's so much variety here and uh, the, the, the nuances that are here. We found spots uh, by looking at the green reading book and we brought three or four uh, members, good players uh, that know this place that we know well, that have set this golf course for the Anderson, set this golf course up for the Anderson four ball and have found some of those spots where you swear that ball's breaking two inches right to left and it actually goes maybe an inch and a half left to right. It's, but there's a little ridge there that you just, unless you know this place, you wouldn't see. That is all over. It's fabulous. And that leads to, to the prep that players have to put in, where it's not a simple, once you see it, you you know it. It's not all out in front of you. It, it requires a great study of those greens to fully understand them. I've been out there a couple times, and I, I feel like I'm just scraping the surface of even, you know, having a clue which way some putts are going. With that, what what is your week, outside of obviously talking to an idiot like myself, what, what does your week look like this week, and what's the prep uh, lead up for it in the past couple of weeks? What, do, what are you guys looking now that we're a couple days out from hosting the championship? Well, we've been up here in recent weeks quite often. Clearly, we're up here, you know, beginning last summer. 
really to set our pre preliminary plans for June. And so we had to recalibrate for September and not knowing what the weather uh, was going to bring, you know, we always wait until game time and really begin to look at the long-term forecast about two weeks out. And if we see, you know, wet weather coming and cool temperatures, we'll think one way. If we see maybe we've got a chance for some, for some firmness, we'll think another way. Or if we've got a little blustery conditions, you know, that's another thing about Wingfoot uh, that we're seeing this week. We may have uh, two or three uh, shifts in the wind direction. Uh, the way it's looking like now, we may start out of, uh, with some winds out of the southwest and they'll shift to the northeast and then back to the north. Um, that's been happening all over the last two weeks. We've, we've had the golf course play completely differently with the wind coming out of the south as opposed to the north. And I think we'll see a little bit of that this week. We look at all of that. We try to make our decisions in, at game time based on what the weather and, and the wind uh, especially will, will present to us. But I think, you know, it really, really, we, we, we set our plan. We, um, you know, we, we ask for, for certain things from the golf course superintendent. Steve Rabideau is magnificent in this team. Uh, and uh, they delivered it. And uh, we've come up and we've made some adjustments that now, just a few days out, as I said, we look like we're going to get uh, some firmness, possibly a little blustery conditions, maybe for a couple of days, a little cooler temperatures on the weekend. Uh, and we've got the rough, you know, we had the rough pretty healthy coming into this. It's easier to grow it or it's easier to cut it than it is to grow it. We can control cutting it. We can't control growing it. That's mother nature. So we try to have a little more, a little more to it when we come in and then we manage it into what we need based on the weather. And that's worked out well, I think, but, um, I think it's really coming out every morning. I think a couple of the nuanced things would be uh, now we're out at 5:45 each morning this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it was this weekend too. And uh, that's in the dark, by the way, with two and a half hours less daylight. We're we're doing the first two holes of set up under LED lights. That's never, at least in my lifetime, it's never happened with a U.S. Open uh, before. Uh, maintenance is being done uh, in in the dark at the beginning of the morning. Because our first starting times beginning today for practice rounds are at 6:50, and that'll be that's really right uh, as daylight comes up and the guys are warming up on the practice range under LED lights in the darkness because we just don't have the light. Um, but it's working out fine. It's it's all it's all fine. But um, we'll start at 5:45 and uh, we'll um, we'll go out and look at everything. We'll look we'll look at how the green speeds are now ticking up a little bit. The firmness is coming down at us. And uh, we'll nuance, we'll set our, uh, we'll look at the nuances around our whole locations and make minor modifications based on the weather. And that's just a constant sort of um, refinement and refinement. And around here with these budding greens, it's, it's on a daily basis. It, do you watch any golf while you go out there? Like during the day, do you watch how shots are reacting? Are, are there certain things that you're looking for, or certain holes that you're paying closer attention to than others? Yes. Great question. We, uh, in two ways, we have several of our staff who are part of our setup team out watching golf beginning today. The players all be, began arriving this weekend. Most all of them will be here today. And uh, so our, we've got a team of four that are out on assigned holes today watching golf, uh, how balls are reacting uh, into certain fairways that have a cant to them. How firm are they? Are they staying in the fairway? How balls coming out of a fair, out of the fairway are responding on, on the putting green? Are they hitting and backing up? Are they bounce, bounce, check and trickle out? 
What happens coming out of the rough? What are we seeing? That'll inform us. Uh, in fact, we'll talk about that at what we call our 230 superintendents meeting in a short time here where we'll, we'll go through those notes and hear what the staff has seen. Uh, I think we're still a day, maybe two away from seeing what championship conditions will be like, but we're getting closer and we do do that. Our agronomists, we have three of them here, will be watching play and taking uh, firmness readings on the putting greens multiple times during the day and uh, stint meter readings both in the morning, the afternoon, and the late afternoon. Because what happens, and this is a misnomer that a lot of folks don't realize, is that in the morning when we prep the grains, uh, they're cut and they're rolled. And that's, and then generally there's a small application of water. We call it painting the grain to eliminate wilt in the afternoon if it gets windy. But that's the fastest the grains will be all day because they continue to grow. And we want to know what that bounce back is. We might start on a particular putting green uh, at 12 feet, seven inches. And by one o'clock in the afternoon, it's 12 feet, three inches. That's important to know because we know what it is in the morning. That's the fastest it's going to be. But if it's bouncing back four inches, that means one thing for a whole location. But if it's bouncing back a foot, that means another. And uh, generally, after four or five days, you get a consistent pattern of that. And it really informs our... Um, our whole location uh, work, as does the watching the golf. In a typical U.S. Open year, would you look at being on site somewhere the week of or having somebody on site the week of a year ahead of time to see what that bounce back is like given the time of year or two years out? Or, or is it all hands on deck at the current venue? Uh, it's both. We, we had plans this year to be uh, uh, at the at Torrey Pines during, the, uh, I believe it's California Amateur that was gonna be played there in June. And uh, the, the Southern California Golf Association was going to set the golf course in a way that was really gonna give us some good intel for next year's US Open. Unfortunately, COVID required that event to be postponed. So we didn't get that intel, but we, and we tried to do that last year with an event here at Wingfoot called the Anderson, the Anderson four ball where it's set up in a really Mm -hmm. strong way for good players, good mid-amateurs. And uh, so we gather that intel with uh, what was seen there. So we do, if there's the opportunity, we'll we'll try to gather that. And then of course, um, you know, other times during the summer and certainly in the lead up. uh, But, you know, sometimes in in a normal year in June, it's a little tough, especially in the Northeast coming out of the uh, cooler spring. When you get out on the West Coast, a little bit easier. What are some holes that you're most looking forward to watching this week? Oh, boy, that's a great question because uh, there's so many here. Uh, you know, I think one yeah. thing about Wingfoot that uh, is often lost in its brilliance uh, is its brilliance with, with the architecture that's here. Um, I, I think for your listeners that are going to watch on, on television, uh, you know, you talk about you'll see narrowness you'll see uh you'll see us open rough in fact we're gonna you know we've got a chance to have a good old-fashioned us open you'll see these these magnificent putting greens these flash bunkers but don't miss how much wing foot turns you've got 11 holes uh, seven of them that turn right to left and four of them that turn left to right Uh, 11 of the 14 long holes and so when you think about that from a player's standpoint, and there's can'ts, fairway can'ts one way or another, 
players really got to control not just an approach shot, but where he plays his ball off the tee into the fairway. It's firm and fast, and it pants left to right on a 500-yard par four like 17. He's going to have to land it in the middle or left side of that fairway to keep the angle that he wants into that narrow putting green. There's a lot of that here. You've got to maneuver your ball both ways. In fact, Justin Thomas was here a couple of weeks ago and played with Tiger Woods. Uh, you may have read that uh, he said, uh, well, he told Jason Gore. And that's the other thing I'd mention. I mean, I'll mention Jason in a minute. Uh, I was going to ask you yeah, about Jason. Uh, and he, uh, he told Jason, well, I guess I better go out and buy a three-wood. I can turn right to left. Because there's a lot of that here. You know, you think about it, uh, you know, hole number one and um, – number five and, and number uh, 16, and eight, 14, and 14. There's just a lot of that, but you also have the, the left to right holes, uh, number two and, and number eight and, and, uh, and number 17. And so there's both. And uh, so the ability to hit all those shots, you know, you just don't stand up and, and aim up the right side and hit a hard draw back to the middle. You've got to think about moving it both ways and where you want to land it. We think that's brilliant. Uh, Jason, you know, I'll just mention Jason. That's kind of the, the second rail of, of uh, a third rail, I guess, of our, of our data collection, so to speak, our Intel with the players. And it's new for us last couple of years, really started at Pebble beach last year where Jason's in constant contact. He's out now, right now. We'll catch up a little bit later we committed to do this and Jason is, there's nobody better than Jason to do it. He loves doing it. He talks to as many players as, as uh, he can. What do you think? What are you seeing? What are you feeling underfoot? How does this feel? How does that feel? Tell me what you think. And then he'll bring it back to us and it'll, it'll, we'll, we'll listen to it and it'll inform some of our decision-making. And, uh, you know, we, we're not going to try to, you know, we'll hear things that we can do and, and things that we can't do that will inform our decisions, but we're better for having that intel. And then, He'll explain some things uh, uh, that uh, maybe are going to be beneficial that a player is wondering about. And, you know, we'll even, there are some whole locations here at Wingfoot that I'm sure some of the players just walking around in the evenings, seeing some of the tees that are left in, in, in the putting greens where players think we're going to put whole locations. And by the way, they're pretty darn good at that. Uh, they pretty much know where we're going uh, most of the time, not all of the time. Uh, and we think about that, too, from a reverse strategy standpoint. But they're pretty good at it. And yet uh, there are places in some of these greens where in practice round, we're just going to show them we're not using that. And uh, we're going to put a practice round flagstick there just to show them, no, we're not going to force it. You can just rest assured we're not going there. And uh, there's some wonderful places, but at the green speeds we're going to have, we're just not going to use it. With player feedback, obviously uh, – we're, we've got a podcast coming out tomorrow about the 74 uh, U.S. Open. And even then, players complaining, oh, this is the last U.S. Open I'm ever going to play in. And sure enough, they're there back for eight more U.S. Opens after that. There, I think that there's always been a little bit of a push and pull. Where do you stand on the line of, obviously, a setup in determining a champion. Part of golf is a mental thing. There should be some aspects of a setup that do get a little under player skin, correct? I think that we've always felt that you look at the really great, the greatest of the great, they had a special ability to block everything else out and just take their medicine when they needed to take their medicine. You know, you think about 
Jack and Tiger. I, I remember it was with Mike Davis one time and, and uh, Jack Nicholas was sharing the story. Yeah, I used to walk in the locker room at a US Open. In fact, when we, I know when it was, she told the story when uh, we inaugurated the Jack Nicholas room in the, in the USJ Museum. He said, yeah, I always loved the US Open. It was always my favorite championship. I knew it was gonna be on the hardest course with the hardest setup. Uh, and I always loved that because uh, I, I felt like I could prevail. I had an advantage because I would walk in the locker room and I would hear guys complaining about this, that, and the other. And I'd just walk by that person and say, I got you beat, the next person, I got you beat, next person, I got you beat. And it really got down to about 25 or 30 guys that I had to beat because they were all done before it even started because they were in the wrong frame of mind. And I think that's a, that's a part of being a champion, a U.S. Open champion. I take great pride in that. It's not our intention to, to, um, to stick it to the players. It's our intention to create something special. And when they do a, a win a U.S. Open and hoist that trophy and climb that mountaintop, they've achieved the same thing that Bob Jones did and, and, uh, and Ben Hogan and Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus and Lee Trevino and Tiger Woods. Same thing, no different. Uh, and, and they've achieved something special unlike anything else on what we think are the greatest courses and um, with a setup that really requires them to showcase every bit of their uh, talent. Yeah, I I think the best tournaments, obviously, they I think there's you have to deal with more than just shooting a low score. It, it ha- there has to be some sort of there. There's a mental strain when you come off the golf course that's different than other tournaments when you're playing at the highest level. And I think that's something that the U.S. Open, having never played in one, but having played another USGA event, it is something that a USGA event evokes that's different than from say a state am in my experience. In terms of, we've talked a little bit about pin positions. I'm interested in understanding, do you have a a thought on how you pick pin positions on given days? Is there a cadence that you like to, you know, have where, you know, there's a stretch of tough pins and some more gettable pins? How, How do you guys approach daily pin positions? Well, it's a combination of where the teeing area is going to be and and where the whole location is going to be. It's, it's not surely just the, the whole location. And it has to do with the weather too. It has to do with firmness. It's not just the, the flight of the ball. As I said, we, we want the player to think about what the ball is going to do when it's on the ground or uh, how they have to shape it to get it to a certain whole location. Um, and so, so we think about all of those things. And I, I think what we do endeavor to do is really you know, so you don't provide an advantage to any one certain type of player, somebody who has a predominance to moving it left to right or right to left, or, um, you know, I think we try to get a good balance of uh, right and left and even middle hole locations. Uh, and we also try to look at what is the carry, what is the force carry over a bunker or or a feature that, um, you know, if it's a wedge, it's 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 one type of carry where, you know, you, you'd be able to put a little more spin on the ball, throw it up in the air and stop it sooner. Where if you've got a four iron and you've got a feature uh, six feet in front of something, you get a, you know, 212 yard shot, you know, that's not fair. We got to leave it a little bit more exposed to at least provide the opportunity for somebody to, if they hit a good shot to reward it. So we think about all of those things. And I think it really does play into uh, the firmness, the weather, uh, the length of shot that that's that's in, and and what are we trying to, 
what are we trying to get the player to do? And, you know, part of it too is tempting the player. Jason talks about this a lot. When do you get them to um, really take their eye off the middle of that green and focus on hitting it right, take, taking dead aim right at the flagstick? He asked two players, I'll, I'll, I'll let them go unnamed yesterday, what their go-to club and yardage was where they would almost always fire at the flagstick. And they both said six iron. And these are pretty long guys. Uh, so you're looking at about a 200, 210 yard shot. And in fact, he even asked them the yardage. It's about, it was about 200 yards. When they get 200 and in, they're firing at the flag. Now, these are two really good ball strikers, two, two of the better ones in the game. Uh, I would venture to say that you'd probably hear seven and especially eight iron from most of the guys, eight, everybody with an eight iron in their hands. Seven iron is kind of the borderline six iron where sometimes they're going to fire away from, from hole. You'll see that a little bit on a, a one of the great par threes in the game is number 10 here at Wingfoot in the game. And you'll see that take shape this week at Wingfoot. You'll see opportunities that we will give to tempt the players to go with the flagstick. And if they miss it, uh, it's going to be a significant penalty. Um, but if, they, uh, if they're able to execute a shot, uh, they could pick up a shot on the field. One of the things I think is most compelling about Wingfoot because of those undulating greens is when you chicken out at Wingfoot, two putt is not a guaranteed thing. And that's the beauty is that it almost, I don't think it's necessarily that strategic of a golf course tee to green. And obviously it's set up very penal with the thick rough, but the strategy comes in on that second shot because of how intricate the slopes are on the green is when to push the gas when to when to hit the gas and go at something versus you know when to rein back and understand hey I'm not in the right spot to go at something I think that's where the the bulk of the strategy comes in here and and I think that's the the neat thing about here and what you're saying is that tempting the players to do something is is where you can get so many out here you see no hazard double bogeys are worse, which is, I think, what, the most frustrating thing as a player. I think that's that's really well said, Andy. I, you know, it's I think the place oftentimes you don't want to be with some whole, whole locations here at Wingfoot is hole high in the wrong place because you've got that six foot break and you have what's below it doesn't bottom out and you've got that four or five, six footer coming back up the hill for par. It's just that type of course. You'll see that happen on one, 15, a number of holes. But I'll tell you what is perhaps even more difficult is when you just miss a green here at Wingfoot. These push-up greens are all, a lot of them are built up and uh, the deep flash face bunkers. And even when you miss the bunkers, um, the, uh, the thick stands of um, Kentucky bluegrass off to the sides, it's, it's not that you miss a green and you've got this awkward pitch shot through long rough, but you've got one foot, of, uh, your stance is, one foot's a foot higher than the other, and you're kind of standing on this tremendous angle in this long rough to this undulating green to pitch. Uh, and heaven forbid if you short side yourself. But uh, I think that may be even more difficult is when you just miss a green wing foot and you've got one of those awkward stances. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's not a fun place to miss. Uh, with the rough, what do you consider the line between allowing for great recovery shots, which are oftentimes, you know, some of the most thrilling moments in golf versus just strictly penalizing for a miss? Well, I, I think we've, for our entire history, 
we've always believed at the USGA that uh, premium on accuracy off the tee is important. Uh, the, the best players really do drive the ball in the fairway most of the time, much of the time. And it, and look, that's you know that that's that's going to be the first thing that people notice here this week. You you've got to get the ball in the fairway, or most of the time, nobody's going to get the fall, ball in the fairway all the time. But I really would seriously doubt if anybody can win the U.S. Open this year playing from the rough on a consistent basis. Um, and so there's going to be a premium there. It's narrow, uh, but, but it's just what it was in 2006 uh, and previous U.S. Opens. And it's what Wingfoot is on a daily basis, frankly. Uh, we could come here, give us two weeks, grow a little bit of rough, uh, maybe add six inches, eight inches, ten inches to the greens. We can play U.S. Open almost any time during the summer or, or you know, even September now. But, um, you know, I... I think it's, it, it is that, and I, I, we also, though, recognize that we don't want people just pitching out every time. You know, you're going to see that. You're going to see a lot more of that at this year than you've, than you've seen in recent years. Saw a little bit of it pebble not, last year, not, not a lot, uh, but you'll see more of it you'll, you'll, than you have in recent years at the U.S. Open. But at the same time, you'll see, I think it's eight holes that we have what's been known as graduated rough. It's about, it's, 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 it's narrower than it was in 2006, not by a lot, but by a little, it'll be a three inch cut of rough, which is as about as most of what the guys will see all year, but seven or eight out of 10 times that ball's going to sit up. Uh, and, it, and the guys are going to be able to get a club on it in a pretty solid way and get their ball up by the green or on the green, but they're not going to be able to control it perfectly. And so that ball is going to go all over yeah. the place. And um, so we've given them the fairway and we've given them on the longer holes, holes like number one and number two and number eight, or, you know, it's 480, 490, 500, giving them a little more leeway, but they're not going to be able to control their ball. And when they do really miss it, wide right or left, they'll get a sh maybe, maybe three out of 10 times to be able to go at the green. The other seven, they're going to have to pitch out. With, uh, with no fans and no infrastructure, that's got to be somewhat, it's, you know, it's, it's a huge bummer. Everybody wishes there are fans there, but from a setup standpoint, it's got to be like the biggest luxury that you've ever encountered. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, it, you know, it, go, it cuts, both, cut, cuts both ways like you, you said. Uh, you know, I think the players feed out the energy of fans and, and uh, you know, um, they're, they're, we would much rather have fans. Certainly, uh, we all would. And, Let's hope next year we'll be able to get back to that. And um, but it was when we got here uh, about ten days ago, and and planted uh, roots through the U.S. Open, and to be out on the golf course and not see any grandstands or any concession stands and rope lines that are very wide, um, it was surreal. Really, it's just the television towers and the laser measuring equipment, um, and that's really about it. I've never seen anything like it before. It was a bit surreal and it was so quiet. Uh, even now, Monday, normally we'd have 15, 18,000 people out here watching at uh, eight o'clock this morning. Nobody. Quiet. Just the players, just us. A uh, few caddies ahead of their players. And you know what, though? The vistas that the players see, uh, it, it, it's, it's going to be spectacular in its own way. 
because I think fans watching on the broadcast are going to see Wingfoot come to life without fans and really see Wingfoot in its truest sense like they wouldn't otherwise. It'll be, it'll be more pure Wingfoot than the grandstands and the fans. So there's good and bad in both of that. I think for the broadcast viewer, it'll be pretty cool to see this place as you would see it if you were playing it. Yeah, the the grandstands have have a tremendous impact on the scale. Uh, you know, it just they just shrink everything around them. And the thing that is the most impactful aspect of Wingfoot is the grand and grandness and and massive scale of the greens. And it should allow viewers to see it so much better. The other thing is that. You know, oftentimes when you miss big in a U.S. Open, you're in the best spot rather than a small miss because you're in where all the trampled down rough is and there should be very little of that this week. Yeah, that's a great point. We've talked a lot about that this week. And, you know, we we have setting up those TD towers and all the cabling and and all that for uh, NBC and Golf Channel. There's a lot of car traffic and we've kept the rope lines very wide. Um but you know, you you get it offline here this year. There aren't fans trampling down uh, that rough. And uh, boy, beware if you get it outside those rope lines. It's going to be brutal. Because I'm going to tell you what, we've already stopped cutting it. So you and these rope lines are much wider. You know, Mike Davis, uh, he was uh, he was with us. Came out and looked at our plan Saturday, and uh, he made the comment to me. He said, you know, I think we might have had the rope lines a little narrow in 2006 because the guys were hitting it outside the ropes a lot and we're on that trample down rough. And, and one of the guys on our team said, you know, that's interesting. I wonder if, if the rope lines would have been wider and Phil would have been in that long, thick rough if he'd have just pitched out to the fairway instead of trying to take uh, the heroic shot to the green. One will never know, but it is an interesting, an interesting thought. It, it is. <laughs> I mean, that hole might be have been played over more times yeah. than people's heads than any uh, any hole. <laughs> um, it, you know, then you wonder if Monty, if if VJ hadn't been in the grandstands, if Monty would have hit a better shot and not made a double too. <laughs> exactly. Um, with a. Uh, I mean, that's one of the coolest things I think about Wingfoot is I think in 2006, six of the eight hardest holes were the last six holes. So you get this reverse Augusta effect of where it, you know, the guy that gets in the house and posts a number actually has some, like Augusta, you know, somebody posts 10 under and everybody's like, oh, 10 unders in. But then 20 minutes later, it's completely irrelevant. Here you post a score and everybody's coming back to you. It's the middle stretch of holes here at Wingfoot that you have to get it. Six through 12. You have to get it. Six through 12. Uh, You won't get it generally one through five or 13 through 18. Not that you can't make birdie, but especially 13, the brilliance of, uh, they call it old white mule because Tillinghast's favorite mule. They didn't have uh, typical construction equipment back in the 20s. Uh, they had mule pull drags that would drag out uh, the greens and, and such. And Sillinghast uh, used his favorite old white mule on number 13. And that's where it starts coming in, coming home. If you've got a lead and uh, you're on 13, I think uh, there cannot be any other stretch in, in, in golf that is any more demanding than 13 through 18 at Wingfoot. Every one of them you can't, there's just no let up. It's, it's just, uh, it's just wonderful. And every hole has got its own character to it. 
you know, 13 putting green there. It's not overly long. We'll play it around 200, you know, and, and 14 and 15 are not long, 450 and 420. Um, but the putting greens there are amazing. Then you get to backbreaker 500 yard par four dog leg left with a narrow green on 16, another 500 yard dog leg right par four 17 with a narrow green where Jeff will be chipped in on. Then you got that 470 yard par four hole with that amazing green on 18. It's just, you're right. You, you, you might have a five shot lead coming into those final stretch of holes. You got your work cut out for you. Yeah. I hope for something similar to 06 where we have some players in the mix, but it, it will even be compelling if you've got a guy that's four or five shots out in front, just getting it into the house is, is a task on itself. You know, it's not, not a foregone conclusion with it being us open week. And you've been a part of a lot of us opens as a, a fan and as a uh, organizer, what is one or two of your favorite us open moments? Oh, goodness. Uh, well, growing up, you know, I think that uh, 80, 1982 U.S. Open that uh, Tom Watson shipped in on 18. I was at an age then. I was 21 years old. And to watch that was just, you know, inspiring to me um, growing up. And um, he uh, he said something that was really hit home with me that, you know, my dad told me when I was a young man, a young boy, that if you could ever win the National Open, you'd really achieve something because you would have won it on the toughest course of the year. And that always, that always meant something, Tom. He talks about that a lot. Uh, I've talked to him about it. It's true. He uses it a lot. You know, his dad, um, I think his dad uh, made him memorize all of the names on the U S open trophy. I mean, it meant so much to him when he raised his arms, making that birdie putt on 18, you could just see the exhilaration, something he had dreamed about his whole life. And for American, you know, we, 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 many of them talk about it being the most important championship for them. And, uh, you know, we're, we're building on that. And uh, I think that was one. In fact, I, I it, it's, it dates me a little bit. But that year I got within one stroke of a playoff in, in final qualifying to get to Pebble. Didn't make it um, uh, in the Seattle area. Uh, but that also holds special. Uh, that's the closest I ever got to playing in an open. Um, but I, that... Uh... One thing about Watson is that his first uh, 54 hole lead in a U.S. Open was 74 when nobody knew who he was exactly. at Wingfoot. In fact, he had a couple, two or three leads, I think, at various times in the Open. And, that, and here at 74, that's right, he um, he, he, he was and he was he was really an unknown. And um, and uh, look what happened, you know, who, who, you know, years later. But uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and you know, that's what I mean about Wingfoot. You look at well, even Irwin, it was his first U.S. Open. He wasn't a household name at that time. Goes on to win two more and all that he's won. I mean, but that's what that's what happens. Even Casper in 59, uh, he wasn't a household name at that time. He, he was a, one of the better players, but it wasn't until the 60s that he really became dominant. Uh, Wingfoot just, there's a, there's a knack for uh, the cream rising to the top, and it's because of uh, what this golf course brings out in the players, you know, and I think that's, that's the thing that we get excited about. We're fans. We want to, we want to, we want to showcase this great golf course, what you're going to see here, even the clubhouse, when you walk on property and this granite stone clubhouse, it, like Tillinghouse talked about, it, 
it comes out of the ground. It's like all the granite stone around the property. It's just, you, you walk on and you walk by this thing and uh, just awe-inspiring. Uh, it, it's, it's amazing in itself. And then you see some of what's here at this golf course. That's, that's what we want to showcase. And then we want to showcase how good these players are. You know, this golf course is, if it's not our hardest, it's certainly one of them. Uh, and these players are so great and have so much talent. We're just going to, we're just going to set it up as Wingfoot is, let Wingfoot be Wingfoot, let it showcase itself. We don't have to talk about it. And then just get out of the way and let the players shine. That's our strategy. Just let Wingfoot be Wingfoot. Yeah. I mean, when you got a course like this one, it's, uh, it's pretty simple. You don't have to add anything to it. Um, big news out of Pinehurst last week. From your standpoint as a, as a setup guy and you know championships uh, guy, what benefit does having these uh, anchor venues such as Pinehurst provide you from a setup standpoint? I think it's for uh, there's a lot of benefits, and and it's not a rota. Andy, as you said, as, as you know, yeah. it's not. But it, really what we've endeavored to do, uh, and I think you and I have talked about this before. If not, I'll just put it out very quickly. But two years ago, we have, we have a gentleman on our uh, championship committee on our board of directors, our, our USA executive committee by the name of Nick Price, former world number one, multiple major winner, and one of the finest human beings I've ever known. And uh, he, we were sitting in a championship committee meeting two years ago, and he said, he said, uh, he looked over at me and he said, John, it's important where players win their U.S. Open. You know, and you think about that, it's so obvious, but to win at Pebble or Oakmont or Shinnecock or Wingfoot or Pinehurst. And so it really hit home with us. And, and so do you think about going back and if we know we're going back multiple times over the long period, well, why not develop these long, long-term relationships with these iconic revered clubs? And by the way, over the last two years, we've had literally hundreds, if not thousands of conversations with players. Uh, Jason and I are currently are constantly asking players, where do you want to win your U.S. Open? Where should we go? And, uh, you know, you or your listeners, you could develop your own list, but it's, it's not a long list. It's not an overly short list uh, because some places want to host us more often than others, but it's a pretty consistent list. And uh, where do you want to win your U.S. Open? And so we're endeavoring to do that. And Pinehurst was one that, you know, think about it in a pandemic year, we were able to put together what we put together. We didn't think this would really come about until next year. But to, to the thought to bring five U.S. Opens and what we really didn't talk a lot about were the other championships that will go to Pinehurst, U.S. Amateurs, U.S. Women's Amateurs, our Junior Championships, others that they're so willing to host, and even down the road at Pine Needles with our Women's Open in 22, and other other Opens and, and Amateurs um, uh, at that great place, which you know Kelly Miller and and uh, and uh, and uh, Harash's partner have uh, have have also uh, you know they have Mid Pines now and they. And they have Southern Pines. It's really, it's really in that area. Yeah. Is, you know, the, uh, two other Donald Ross gems. Mid Pines is magnificent. And so we're talking with them too. And But uh, Pinehurst with the Opens, uh, we were able to go to the state of uh, North Carolina and say, here, here's what we're considering doing. Uh, can you, uh, can we partner with you? This is good for the state. 
more than $2 billion of economic impact. We demonstrated that just with, with uh, the additional four opens that uh, weren't scheduled. And they said, you bet, we want some of your jobs with your new test center. We need to build a new one. And uh, they wanted us and, uh, and $18 million later, uh, that's what's happening. And we're excited about it. We think going to the home of American golf and expanding on a footprint of staff that we already have there, our open championships team is there and, and expanding on that and more championships, in North Carolina and Pinehurst will be great for the USGA and, and our stakeholders. Any, uh, I know you probably don't want to answer this question, but what are a few other courses you'd like to see as anchor points? If you, if you, uh, if you were, you know, not saying they're going to happen, but you'd like to see. Oh, you know, I think that there are a lot of places that, you know, I think there'll be very few anchor sites that'll be willing to host the U S open on such a frequent basis. You know, some, some, mm-hmm. some places want it. Some places want it every 20 years. Some want it every 10, some want it every five, some want it every year they can get it. Um, we're not going to do that. Uh, we know that, but so every one of them are different. Every one of them have their own personality, their own thoughts. And I think we're thinking about it strategically. You know, there, there are, um, there are, there are different reasons we'd go in different years and some of those things. So I think really, again, it gets back to where do the players want to go? That really, you know, part of our strategic thinking is really placing the players first. If the players say the U.S. Open is the most important championship in which they, in which they play and for them to win, it will be. Plain and simple. And so it starts with where we go. And if we go where they want to win, and it's important where we go, and it's important when they win and how they win, then uh, that will continue to, to, to build momentum. And that's what we endeavor to do. You know, I, I think it just depends on the site uh, and it depends on their, um, you know, there's some great places that might not want us either. There's some great places that just don't have the length to host us. Uh, and, um, but I, I, I it, it's, it's not an overly long list, but we're looking at quite a few places. How many we end up, uh, you know, going to, and we're not going to go out 20 years with, with a whole bunch of different sites, but uh, there'll be a small number that will, will carve out some long-term relationships, and then we'll leave some open years for others that maybe we'd go to once or once over, you know, every 20 or 30 years. Awesome. Yeah, that's it's exciting, and you know, I think every every golf fan has created their own anchor anchor list. I've seen hundreds of them online. So um, think, you know, we'll look forward to watching this. You know, where do you want to win your U.S. Amateur? Where do you want to win your U.S. Women's Open? It's not just the U.S. Open that we talked to players. Talking to you know, yeah. we, we did a survey of over 400 of uh, of the best players in, in the women's game a few months ago. We asked them the same question. We're having the same discussions, and um, you know, we think about it as to this notion of the player journey starting with the juniors up through the amateurs and the opens on both the men's and women's sides, you know, where, 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 where do they want to, where do they want to win their U S girls junior or their junior amateur or the women's amateur? You know, what is, you, you look at the great champions that have come out of the women's amateur and, and the U S amateur and, and uh, to point back to, Hey, I want it such and such, you know, that's, you know, you talk to the players that have won a U.S. amateur and they take great pride in, the courses that uh, they've won at. And you look at our lineup there over the next several years where we announced, I think it was six of them in a row with Ridgewood Country Club and and um, and Hazeltine and 
Marion and uh, so on and so forth, the Olympic Club, it's, uh, you know, everybody would be thrilled and honored to win at any of those sites and others. And that's, so it's, it's not just the U.S. Open. Uh, where do they, where, where do, where do all of our champions want to win? We're thinking about that a lot. Players first. And that's a, that's a great point because it matters a ton. And, you know, even if they don't go on to becoming one of the next great professionals, they'll always remember where they played their U S junior or U S girls junior. Uh, I think that, I mean, and that's a special achievement, you know, a lot of times one of the best achievements of their, you know, young I, life. So I, I, I love to hear that. You talk to the, to the Jay Stiggles when he was an amateur or the Vinnie Giles or the Jimmy Holcreeds or, or, uh, uh, or the Nathan Smiths or, or the Nathaniel Crosby's or, uh, you know, you, you pick your lifelong amateur and, uh, they, you know, where they won, it, it means the same thing. It's, it's, you know, where they win is important to them. All right, John, I, I don't want to take any more of your time. You've got a very busy week. I am looking forward to it and I'm sure all everybody else is really looking forward to it and wish you the best. And it looks like a great week of weather and uh, can't wait to watch the 2020 US Thank Open. Thank you, Andy. It's always good to be with you. We're, we're excited. It's, uh, we just feel fortunate and grateful to play. It'll be fun. All the best with your with your new little one. Enjoy. It.